You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. That's very kind. Uh, hey friends, welcome to church. Uh, Pastor Ron is speaking at Canby Alliance Church this morning. Uh, he and Pastor Tim Barton, the pastor of Canby Alliance, have been close friends for a while. Tim Barton is actually on a missions trip in West Africa, asked Ron to stop by and take the weekend. So that's where he is. He sends his love and greeting. So you guys get to hear from me. Uh, I'm thankful we're here. We're in the middle of this family life series, and I'm thankful uh, Pastor Ron has been leading us through some topics around marriage, around parenting, and as a married man who also has kids, I'm really thankful that we've been exploring the ideas of how the grace and the gospel of God influences some everyday life. But frankly, I mean, for many of us, um, our lives aren't defined by a spouse or by kids. We're not married. And so today we're going to touch on the topic of singleness. Uh, my endeavor is, I think as always, I hope you guys can get this from me, that in every message that I preached, basically it has one big point. Jesus is Lord. He's the best. Give everything to him. It's going to go okay. Um, the gospel is the good news um, for all people at every age, every gender, every, every marital status in life. And my hope today is always and only on Jesus um, that he's the solution, and that we're just going to try to apply the particulars of his way of doing things to our lives today. So that's the first thing. The first thing I want to be really clear about is that Jesus is the best. Now, the second thing that I want to be really clear about is that I'm not a single guy. This is pretty obvious. I, uh, my wife and I will celebrate 10 years of marriage this spring, and for more than half of that time, we've just been drowning in children. Um, <laughs> So it's been a long time since I was single, and even when I was single, I was like really single. I grew up in rural, you might call it remote parts of Alaska, and so it was almost as likely for me to like meet a moose as it was a young woman my own age. Uh, and so I spent, if anybody knew me back in my teens and in my early college years, frankly into my mid-twenties, someone even argue into my late-twenties, um, I really wasn't fit for kind of like relationships with other human beings who had feelings and things like that. And so it's been a long and rocky journey for my wife to bear with me, but I think that somehow by the grace of God, I have been rescued from myself and I am approaching something like the mature version of who God intends for me to be. So as always, please pray for my wife. Um, there's a few assumptions that I think are just to be clear to come up on the screen here. That the things we want to talk about. One is that I don't assume that singleness um, is a particular kind of disease that ought to be cured, um, that it's not a state to be pitied or even necessarily changed. Um, singleness is not exclusively or even largely a condition of youth. We often think of singles being that kind of like 20 to 30-something, you know, the folks who are half human beings, you know, before they get married. None of that. No, that's not true. Um, if you're single, you're not alone. In fact, you're not even in the minority. Um, demographically speaking, over half of the adults in the United States today are not married. Um, and then lastly, um, I want to assume that Jesus is sufficient for all seasons and all stages of life. So here's the big idea. The big idea today is that Jesus is sufficient for the single and that the church can be especially helpful. That's the claim I'm going to try to make, that Jesus is sufficient and that the church 
can be helpful. To get us there, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, rather than kind of poke around in a verse or two in a paragraph here and there, we're actually going to take the entire book, the whole narrative arc of the book of Ruth, which is a little book in the Old Testament this morning, to help demonstrate a few points around singleness. So let's go ahead and pray. We'll get into our text. Jesus, thank you that you, as a single man, lived a full, complete, and perfect life and have thus redeemed singleness. Give us grace today to be able to hear from your word and an understanding for how you would have us live in this age. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, like I said, we're looking at the book of Ruth. It is in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there. You start at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then keep going, Joshua, keep going, Judges, keep going, there's Ruth. It's a little book, about four chapters long. It's a tightly woven narrative, moves pretty quickly, and it has three characters that we're going to be introduced today. The first, uh, the title character, of course, is Ruth. Uh, She's a Moabite woman that's not Jewish. Um, But actually, to my reading of the book, she's not the central character of the book. The central character of the book, I believe, is her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. Uh, She is a Jewish woman. And then about halfway through the book, we're going to get introduced to a third character. His name is Boaz. So the book opens with the note that our story is set during a period of famine in the land. So if you have your Bibles, let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the days of the judges, or excuse me, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So I'm a big context guy, so let me show you on a map what we're talking about. So here you can kind of see, here's the Middle East, you can see Egypt, and then up north is Turkey, and then inside that red box is what is now modern-day Israel. So here we're going to zoom in a little bit, and you can see Bethlehem there in the top left. That's where our family is located, and they're going to travel from Bethlehem about 60, 80 miles to the southeast to the country of Moab to be able to escape a famine and try to eke out a living there. So pick up with the story again in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons, frankly, I don't, I'm going to guess here and say it's Malone and Chilion, but I'm probably wrong. Uh, they were Ephrathites, don't worry about that, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Hey, welcome to the Old Testament, guys. Lots of awkward names. Um, so I'm a visual guy, so I just wanted to draw you a little family tree. So here's our, here's, it's always fun to imagine biblical characters as hipsters. But um, So you see Elimelech and Naomi, they're married, and then they have two sons, Malone and Chilion. All right, so there's that. Um, then verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. All right, so let's see what happens to our little family tree. Uh, First, Elimelech is going to die. And then the two boys are going to get married, and they're going to get married to two other ladies, Orpah and Ruth. Okay? So, so far, Naomi, remember, she's the main character in the story, is now a widow. All right, moving on, uh, verse 5. They lived there about 10 years, and then both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, so look at the family tree again. Now the two boys die. And so now you just have Naomi and her two daughters. And so this is the story that opens here. It's a tragedy. So far, we've seen a famine and three funerals. Um, Naomi is now in a foreign land. These are not her people. 
She has no hope for economic or physical safety. Uh, She's a single woman in the ancient world. It's a vulnerable and dangerous place to be. And so from this place of tremendous loss and tragedy, she tells her daughter-in-law to go their own way to try to find peace and a new husband. And Naomi will return. She's got a plan. She's going to go back to her hometown in Bethlehem. And she tells her daughters to stay there in their country of Moab, find a new husband, go back and worship your gods. And one of them, Orpah, thinks that's a pretty good idea. And so she stays behind and thus disappears out of the story. But Ruth, Ruth makes a different choice. And here's what she says in verse 15, chapter 1. And Naomi says to Ruth, well, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now keep in mind, Ruth is not a Jewish woman. She did not grow up in the, she grew up separate from the covenant community, but here she is saying, I want to be a part of your family, Ruth, or Naomi, in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So these two women, both widows, both having suffered extreme loss, now make the journey of 60 or 80 miles back to the home country of Bethlehem. And when they arrive, the whole village is set into a commotion in verse 19. And when the women saw them, they said, is this Naomi? And Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Now, Naomi, her name means pleasant. She says, instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Why? For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, we're going to make a point here a little bit later about the role of anger and bitterness towards God during a season of unwanted singleness. But let's continue on with the story. Now, I want you to keep in mind, in the ancient world, these women were experiencing tremendous financial vulnerability. They had no ready means to support themselves outside of prostitution. So thus, in the biblical law, this is Leviticus 19, it instructs that farmers can leave untouched the corners of their fields or the grain that dropped along the way so that those who are not able to support themselves could come along and glean during the harvest time, and thus survive. And so Naomi encourages her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to go into the fields of a certain, quote, worthy man named Boaz. And here Boaz is introduced to us in the first part of chapter 2. Sure enough, Ruth goes out into the field of the man named Boaz, and he catches, or she catches his eye. Chapter 2, verse 5, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, well, who is that? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here's what Boaz does. Boaz sees this woman working hard in the field, and he tells her that she is to go into no other field to glean grain. Rather, she is to stay with his laborers. And he commands his laborers, his reapers, to not touch Ruth. And I think this is an important point that shouldn't be overlooked. Again, in the ancient world, a single woman working in the field is a highly vulnerable 
place. And so Ruth was susceptible to physical and sexual assault while she was just trying to make a living. And so Boaz goes out of his way to make sure that there was an umbrella of protection around Ruth so that she could do what she needed to do to stay alive. He goes even further and says that she's welcome to drink from the cisterns and the water wells that his laborers were to work with as well. So this is staggeringly good news for someone like Ruth. And she asks what she's done to receive such good favor from Boaz, to which Boaz replies, verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take Refuge, under whose wings we have come to take refuge. Keep that little phrase in mind. It's going to become important here in just a little bit. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about bitterness here in a second. We're also going to talk a little bit about faithfulness. You can see here that Ruth, during this season of singleness, remains faithful. Um, But generously, Boaz extends further hospitality. At the end of that day, he sends Ruth home with big baskets full of grain to be able to share with Naomi. And this is the halfway point in the story. So it's worth noting a few things so far. First, we've seen that the story opens with a tragedy that causes emotional, financial, and personal harm to Naomi and Ruth. Second, the two return to Naomi's hometown. They seek shelter and provision, but they carry a great burden of resentment and bitterness towards God. And lastly, the community, and especially Boaz, this righteous man, extend grace to Naomi and Ruth through hospitality. All right, so so far as we start chapter 3 of the story, things are looking up. Ruth has got a steady way to at least be able to feed herself and her mother-in-law, but there's still some uncertainty about this relationship. Is there a romance that's going to start between Ruth and Boaz? Spoiler alert, yes. Um, Naomi steps in at the start of chapter 3, and she suggests that Ruth go back to the threshing floor, which was the place where they beat out the wheat from the chaff and thus had their harvest, where Boaz would, would now be working. He'd be working through the night to prepare for the harvest. Now, harvest then, as it often is now, is a time of celebration. It's a time of festivity. There's eating. There's drinking. There's celebrating. And so uh, Naomi tells Ruth, go to the threshing floor and notice where Boaz will lie down. And this is where the story sounds a little bit off to modern ears because what Naomi tells Ruth to do is basically sneak up on the sleeping man and then uncover his feet and lie down and then cover yourself back up again. Okay, Now, that's not normally advice that we would give to young women today. Um, So give the Bible a little bit of grace. It was a different cultural time. So sure enough, this is exactly what Ruth does. She goes, she finds Boaz, and she uncovers his feet, and she lies down. And then Boaz awakens in the middle of the night, and, and quite, I think, honestly, he's like, whoa, who are you, and what are you doing? She's like, I am Ruth. Remember, it's dark, okay? No, no electricity. It's dark. And here's what she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Did you hear that? Boaz had just blessed Ruth by saying, may the Lord spread his wings over you. And now Ruth comes back to Boaz to say, please cover or spread your wings over me. And you might have missed this, but this is in effect a marriage proposal. Ruth to Boaz, asking for her, asking for him to marry her. And Boaz's response is, yes! However, (laughs) 
uh, there's another, and this is a phrase that we don't use, is a kinsman redeemer, all right? Um, so here, Boaz is appealing to this ancient custom in Israel in which the closest male relative of a widow had the first right of responsibility to do a couple of things. The family land was very important, That was the way that people were able to make a living, and so the closest male relative, in order to ensure that the land stayed within the family, was supposed to buy back the family land. Uh, That would be Naomi's husband's land. Um, But in this case, because Naomi has a daughter-in-law, the deal was is that in order to get the land, you also have to take Ruth as part of the package deal. It's like a bundle. Um, And so... This is the, this is, Boaz is on board, but he knows that he's not the first person in line to be able to make this claim. So he says there's another, and the phrase is a kinsman redeemer. Um, he says there's another kinsman redeemer who's closer in line than me. I've got to go sort it out. Wait here. I'll be right back. So sure enough, the next day, he gets up and he goes to the city gates. And that was, think of it as basically kind of like the city hall. It was the public square in which business was transacted. And he sits there, and sure enough, this other kinsman redeemer walks by. Boaz pulls him in and he says, hey, you know about Naomi, the family land and all that kind of thing. Are you going to redeem that land? And the guy's like, yeah, I think I'll do that. Um, he says, but you know it comes with Ruth too. You have to marry Ruth. And he's like, oh, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. And then he had his own reasons why, but basically he chickens out of the deal. And so he says, Boaz, it's all yours. And so Boaz gladly accepts Ruth as his wife. In chapter 4, verse 13, it says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to, notice this, who do the women talk to first? They talk to Naomi. I told you she was the main character. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. That is a radical statement in a, in a, in a culture of patriarchy, that the, that the love of a, a foreigner, a Moabite woman, would be worth more to Naomi than that of seven sons. Uh, who has given birth to this redeemer? Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to... Naomi, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So thus the story concludes, a story that started in tragedy, now ends in joy. Naomi's name is restored, her bitterness swept away through the birth of this grandchild, and she celebrated as the great matriarch of a great family that would redeem Israel. And Ruth, for her own turn, who is a foreigner, not part of the covenant community, becomes fully integrated back into that faith community, and whose love for her mother-in-law is renowned. And the author concludes by noting for us one of the significant aspects of this story is that out of this union between Ruth and Boaz comes the, the grandfather of King David, who 14 generations later would lead to Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. I want to stop here and talk about this just for a second. Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord cover his, spread his wings over you and cover you. Ruth goes back to Boaz and asks for that same favor. Cover, extend your wings over your servant. Cover me. Enter into a covenant relationship with me. Protect me. Provide for me. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate Boaz. 
Jesus is the ultimate redeemer who sees us, who loves us, not because of how good we are, not because of how lovable we are, but because he, he has made us and now he in, in, endeavors, his whole, his whole design is to bring us into a saving relationship with him as a redeemer in which he says, I will fight for you, I will care for you, I will protect you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. He is the fulfillment of everything that we hoped Boaz to be Jesus now is to us and we can trust in him. So that's the story of Ruth. (sighs) Okay, so far so good, but what lessons might there be for those of us who might be single or just lessons about singleness in general? Um, First, I hope that you're not getting that the only hope for you, especially as a single lady, is for somebody to come and and buy you up. (laughs) It's, it's, no, that's not the message here. That is not the message here at all. In fact, far from it. Um, let me point to a few relevant points here in our discussion. Um, the first thing here is remember Naomi's bitterness. She comes back from the country of Moab. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. My life has become bitter because of what the Lord has done against me. And I want you to hear those words. And, and if you're single today, and especially if you're single and you don't want to be single, The temptation towards bitterness, especially bitterness against God, is very real and it's very strong. And I want you to see yourself in Naomi. And and I want you to... um, Let me just give you a couple of suggestions. If this is you, the first thing I'd like you to do is, is verbalize your frustration. I want you to talk to God in prayer, yell at God in prayer, shout and scream at God in prayer if you need to about your pain, about your unhappiness, about your loneliness. I want you to talk to people who are close to you about it. I think Naomi was quite clear with her community about her bitterness towards God. She was not happy being a single woman. She had lost. This was not how she intended her life to be. So here's the thing about feelings. Feelings, this may surprise you, are meant to be felt. That sounds kind of obvious, but we get ourselves into a lot of trouble when you start living your life ignoring or trying to suppress or reject or shun your feelings. It's okay to be upset and angry with God. He's a big God. He's not scared. It doesn't move him much. He still loves you. So let them know about it. There is something powerful about the healing act of just simply saying how you are feeling. Now, that can slip into a dangerous kind of stuckness where you stay bitter, you stay closed, and you stay hard-hearted. But the first step often to any sort of healing is to at least acknowledge that it's a reality. You're not going to get healed over something you won't, even know, you won't even acknowledge exists. The second thing is to trust God. 
See, Naomi had returned home a widow, lost her husband, lost both of her sons, had tried to lose both of her daughter-in-laws, but one of them stuck with her, and so now she's got Ruth to contend with. And she, the, the day that she arrives back into the community to proclaim herself under the new name of Mara, not Naomi, she did not know how the end of the story would turn out. She did not see or have any right to expect or hope for the positive outcome that we see here in the end of chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. She didn't know. From your position right now, you don't know what the future may hold. You have a, something of an idea what will be happening in the next three or six or maybe even 12 months, but really, you don't know. I am not here to try to plant false hope in your mind. Just trust God like Naomi, and one day all of your dreams will come true, and you'll get the... It doesn't work that way for everybody. If you're single now and you're unhappy about that, there's a chance that that may never change. The difficult thing, if it's not singleness, it might be something else. The difficult thing that you're facing right now may never change. And this is not God's cruelty towards us. This is in part an act of mercy because what God is asking us to do in that moment is to say, look at me, James. If you don't get what you're really hoping for here, will I still be enough for you? And that's hard. To balance the tension between feelings are meant to be felt. I really want someone in my life And if it never comes, will I still love Jesus? Don't give up on trusting God. And the last thing, or the third thing here, is to beware of idolatry. And this is a hard thing to say, but often, especially here within church life, is we make a happy marriage something of an idol meaning that we want it more than anything else. We see it amongst some of our friends and in our community, and and if you're single, you might yearn for that, and it occupies all of your time and your attention, and you begin to reorient your life around the prospect of how can I find myself in a position where I might be able to meet the person who could become the one so I could at least get together with someone and I could stop feeling so alone. We have something of an obsession with being in a relationship. Being single is really hard at times. And this is especially true if you're a divorcee later in life, especially if you're a widower or a widow. Having had companionship, having had friendship, having had intimate connection, and now you are deeply aware of the loss of just the simple act of someone touches you. Someone acknowledges that you're there. Single person who doesn't want to be single, please hear me. You do not need an intimate partner to become a complete human being. The gospel is the good news that you are already in your state of singleness, so adored, so loved, so taken in and swept up by the love of Jesus. Did you know he finds you intimately valuable? 
And the reason I say this is because he demonstrated that with his death on the cross. What you find valuable, you will sacrifice for. Jesus sacrificed the ultimate treasure in the universe himself and on our behalf so that we might come into a relationship with him. He can be trusted with our deepest longings. He can meet our deepest needs for acceptance and forgiveness and unconditional love. A marriage and a relationship is, it is important, but it is not ultimate. It is not the greatest gift you can receive. A relationship with Jesus is. So again, be careful of idolizing, of making utmost this idea of becoming something other than single. And of course, this is so hard, and I can say this from the luxury of a someone who has a warm and loving relationship, who goes home at night to the arms of a woman who cares for me and embraces me. And so please hear me. My compassion is for those who live life uncertain with when they will ever be found attractive and lovable in the eyes of another. And my only hope is that we can help turn our eyes towards Jesus and in him find rest. And I'm going to touch a little bit about the role of the church in all of this because it's ridiculous to say just date Jesus. We are physical beings in physical bodies who need physical connection and physical touch at every space, at every stage. And so we need community. So I, again, verbalize your frustration, trust in Jesus, and beware of idolatry if you're a single person who doesn't want to be single. There's another segment it's like, you're single, and you're kind of happy about it. <laughs> like, and frankly, you're not wrong, right? Being married, having kids is not easy. Like, I have no free time. Just put it that way. I've got three small kids and no free time. And the free time I do have, I spend watching a hundred reruns of Paw Patrol, <laughs> right? And I spend all of my money on, like, swim lessons and soccer cleats and go-gurt, right? I mean, it's just like... If you're young and unattached, there are a lot of wonderful benefits that you have. I'm here to tell you, okay? I love being married and I love my kids. But every now and again, for Mother's Day and Father's Day, my wife have the pact. The only thing we want for Mother's Day and for Father's Day is to pretend like we're not mothers and we're not fathers for that day. Just take the kids far, far away. That's what we really need. Just give us a rest. And that changes, and I know, and I'm looking forward to being a grandparent and all of that, but there are seasons where being single has some tremendous value. And so you don't see a whole big need to get together, to couple up this obsession. And this is, and demographically speaking, a generation ago, the average age of marriage is 20 Today, the average age of marriage for a male is 30, for a woman, 28. We've, we've now skipped this entire decade of our 20s choosing to be single and somewhat unattached. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And I want to touch on one somewhat more lighthearted and one a little bit more serious. We'll deal with the serious one first. Um, some of you may not want to be in a relationship because of the pain you've experienced in a previous relationship. I've heard it said that chances are if a woman has her life ruined, it was ruined by a man. The statistics today is that one out of every six, I'm going to talk about rape here in a second, so please bear with me. I'm going to try to do it carefully. One out of every six women in the United States has either been the victim of a completed or attempted rape. Violence done against women is endemic in our society today. 
I'm sorry. There's a, there's a culture, there's an atmosphere that young men grow up in, especially around porn and just around the way that we talk that sexualizes and dehumanizes women's bodies and creates a stigma that says men as the powerful ones and women as the weaker ones, therefore I as a man can do whatever I want to a woman's body. Friends, this is sick and it's disgusting and it's wrong and it is not human. Dehumanizing another gender is not human and it does violence against the creation story. Go back to Genesis 1 and see the great beauty that God imbues. Both men and women are made in the image of God and when we tolerate and spread language that sexualizes women, dehumanizes them, we are doing violence against women, we're doing violence against the creator and it must stop, especially here in the church where we have to create a safe place that men interact with women and women interact with men out of place of great decency and love and respect and not out of a desire simply to have genital stimulation. So if you've been the victim of a physical abuse, of a sexual abuse, of violence in an intimate situation, you are not alone and there are resources that we would love to point you to to get help. Men Stop it. Stop looking at porn. It's creating an era or aura of violence in your sex life towards your wife or to your partner. Stop condoning speech that dehumanizes women. Boaz was a faithful man who when he saw Ruth, rather than trying to exploit her, protected her, used what he could to extend his umbrella of protection around her. Men, please, grow to be men who care deeply about your wives and your partners and your daughters. So I can appreciate if you've been hurt and you don't want anything else to do with a relationship that's probably okay. And I'm praying that God heals you in your place of pain. And he is able to, and here again, church, this is where we can shine. Because the church can come around side people who have been wounded, people against whom the most intimate trust has been violated and create in them a safe place where they can learn to be touched, learn to trust, learn to receive affection. That's what the church can do. The church can create levels of intimacy and relationship between men and women, between husbands and wives, between grandparents and grandchildren, for the, hus- for the orphan, for the widow, where we all as the family of God can experience relationship in which we can be restored, in which the Holy Spirit can do the deep work of healing in our lives. That's what I yearn for, that we as a church see one another as brothers and sisters in this regard and encourage and point one another towards healing so that we can come to a place where we can say, I can trust again. So that was the heavy stuff. Um, there's other reasons um, for why um, relationships aren't really a thing right now. And, and so, um, um, again, men. Um, a study came out recently. Um, rates of participation in the labor force between non-college-educated men ages 20 to 30 has fallen about 10% over the last decade. 
And they did some studies, and there's an um, uh, economist at the University of Chicago. He found out that one in five, 20%, one in five 20-somethings have not worked at all, like at all, in the last year. And this has historically been the most reliable sector of the labor force, and now 20% of that segment just isn't working at all. What in the world are they doing with all that time? That was the question this economist set out to figure out. Here's what he writes. He says, we have determined that in general, they are not going back to school or switching careers. So what are they doing? The hours that they are not working have been replaced almost one-to-one with leisure time, and 75% of this new leisure time falls into one category, video games. Okay. Um, Now here's the fascinating thing. They asked that same cohort about their levels of life satisfaction. Do you know what they reported? They reported higher levels of life satisfaction and happiness than their peers of the same age who were working or 30s and 40s-somethings. And this kind of makes sense. Because if you're content to live in your mom's basement and play video games for much of your life, you're having a great life. You have no responsibilities. All of, you know, people with kids, people with jobs that have to get up early and stay late and work 60 and 70 hours a week, I mean, that sucks. Why not do this other thing? It'll be interesting when they follow this cohort for the next 10 years and they find that the 20-somethings who play video games all of the time now become 30-somethings who have no job prospects and are still stuck into a cycle of poverty. More women are graduating from college now than ever before, and especially here within the church, just by ways of just, as my observation, I think the statistics somewhat bear it out, that there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect between the levels of maturation and growth between Christian women in the church and Christian men. So that a Christian woman is left to look around and saying, I would love to get together with a nice guy. I can't find squat. <laughs> um, all right. Now, I am not. Now, okay, so video game addiction is like a thing. And I'm not going to, like, shame you into getting out of it. Please know. Like, if <laughs> some folks know me well, and they know that I am not immune to this. And I think one of the reasons that God gave me a wife and a kid is because I am so prone to wasting vast swaths of time. I pride myself to be, I'm a productive guy. I've got stuff to do, and I'm in an MBA program. No, I waste so much time. And if I didn't have a wife and kids, oh, my gosh. I can't shame you into putting down the joystick and getting out into the sunshine and, like, meeting people like human beings do, but here's the deal. What I can point you towards is, again, the gospel. Because, friends, if you're a 20-something, and especially if you're underemployed and you're not able to pursue, and I get it, college is stinking expensive, right? Not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the luxury of being like, yeah, I'm just going to go to college. Like, it's no big deal. And so you're stuck in jobs that are largely part-time, don't have benefits. And so you need to stay at home because somebody's got to pay for the health care. Somebody's got to pay for the car and the phone and the insurance and everything else. And it's hard. But here's the deal. If you find yourself in a season of time where you have an abundance of free time, please do not fall into the trap of leisure that sucks the life out of it and you waste your life. Remember the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God not only saves and redeems us, but calls us to be a blessing to the world around us. And you, young man in your 20s without, who is underemployed, has especially the motivation and the opportunity 
to be able to make a significant difference in the life of the world around you. So begin to invest heavily into the kingdom. Find every opportunity that you can to serve. Go join our pancake breakfast team. God knows we can't even serve you pancakes and eggs today because we don't have enough pe- Get inside the nursery. If you want to meet a nice lady, fellas, where do you think they're hanging out? Go serve in the nursery, right? Start doing things. And in the doing, you will not only bless your community, but you will engage yourself in the social skills, in the personal skills that you need to become a fully formed human being. I was not that at the age of 21, and I certainly wasn't that at 23 when I got married, and Courtney has been suffering much of the time ever since. (laughs) Remember the gospel. Don't waste your life. We serve too holy of a God, too high of a calling to sit around on our duffer pretending that what we're doing is building any value either into the economy of either the United States or the kingdom of God. So invest. It takes courage. It takes self-discipline. You got to do it. All right, lastly, I mentioned how we can, as a church, I said that Jesus is sufficient for the single. Jesus heals those who have been wounded. Jesus heals those who have been abandoned, who have had trust broken against them. Jesus gives you a purpose to live for in a season of waiting. Single person, you are not waiting to become a whole person when somebody comes and finds you and says, will you marry me? You are a whole person now. God has made you, he formed you, he loves you. But here's the deal. We can't pretend that like, oh, go off and let Jesus, you know, let Jesus be your boyfriend. The church, the church as a community that stands in contrast to the community around in the world, can come alongside and intentionally develop cross-cultural, cross-generational, cross-gender relationships. Has anybody ever experienced this? If you're the last in your cohort to get married, you have no married friends. As soon as they get married, your best friends all of a sudden become different people. I noticed this. I saw some buddies get married. I'm like, bye. You're going to go off and have sex a lot, I bet. That's going to be awesome. I'm, I don't. <laughs> if we had more time, I'd touch on the issue of sexuality and singleness. Okay, 60 seconds on sexuality and singleness. <laughs> you are not asexual if you're single. Again, feelings are meant to be felt. God made you a sexual being. You will experience sexual desire. You will experience sexual fantasy. Those things God has given to you. Please do not shun them. Please do not reject them. Please do not treat them as somehow they are icky or sinful in and of themselves. Now, God does call us to not look with lust, but lust is a very different thing than those fleeting sexual thoughts of attraction. That's God giving you a gift. Steward that gift well in your sexuality as a single person. There's a whole other sermon there and a... I'll point you towards, if you want further reading on this, the best stuff I've found is, again, Richard Foster's Money, Sex, and Power. He has a whole chapter on sex and the single that is very illuminating. Last thing about the church. The church can create a safe place where relationships of all different stripes are formed, where single people can feel included into the community as something other than just singles. And I think that that's healthy and that's good. And so let's, as a church... My encouragement, my hope, my prayer is that we at New Life become a people who have grace towards all, who become a place of healing uh, and joy. And we have a ton of fun doing it because Jesus is the best. All right? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray and you'll be dismissed. (sighs) Jesus, help those of us who are in pain today because of violence or pain or hurt done against them.
or a loss that they are experiencing. God, help them to find a measure of grace. Help them to find a measure of healing today. Jesus, we call upon you. I cannot do it. Only you can. So, Lord, come and help us. And for us as a church, God, help us as a church to be the agents of how you spread your love and your healing. Help us to be faithful with our bodies during a season of singleness. Help us to be faithful with our time during a season of singleness. Help us, God. We entrust our entire lives to you, and we proclaim you as being all-sufficient for all of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.